Welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show, and as I continue to dig deeper and deeper into the lineage of modern American music, it is always invigorating to talk to a cat to cats who were in the recording studio uh, with musicians before there really was any kind of template for how to record uh, a record. Uh, there was no um, codifying rules, so there was no efficiency model, and basically. Um, you sort of relied on instinct, intuition, gumption, and what the players needed in order to create music that, when it was pressed on vinyl, uh, you know, really had a lot of breath to it, and uh, it just breathed, and 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 it also just cooked, and and you know, modern. I guess from my point of view today, there's a lot of uh, people that probably assume and maybe they've even <clears throat> been rewarded uh, financially or with awards uh, that they're doing uh, fantastic work, but they don't seem to hear uh, how sterilized the music has we has become uh, in so many different ways. Um, it's a direct reflection of our society as it relates to um, the conforming, uh, wanting to sound like other people. Um, and there's just a lot to break down. Steve Poliot, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thanks, Jake. Did is it fair to say that when you first stepped foot in the in the studios, there was no um, right way to record a record? Well, you know, everybody I met, especially the first two guys I met at the first studio. Uh, had were two different kinds of recording. One of the cats was a little old. He was the studio manager, and he was probably I don't know forty five or fifty. And he was telling me that oh you know you got you got to be careful when you're recording. Keep the levels down and and uh, you know don't add any EQ because uh, you know you don't want to be locked into EQ later. And then also at this at that time uh, when I started. The, the guy that was in the control room doing an album, producing and engineering, Bob Hughes was his name. He was producing and engineering Fleetwood Mac in there. Wow. And he was only, uh, you know, probably 33 at the time. So he had this cutting edge way of recording different than the other guy it was kind of old school. Bob is telling me, you know what it's supposed to sound like. Add the EQ now. So when you play the analog tape back later, you're not EQing a bunch of hiss on there and it's cleaner and, and, you know, stuff like that, you know. So so he was the one that actually trained me, and, uh, you know, I was very lucky to have him help me. <clears throat> uh, speaking of the older cat, um, you know, he was from a generation. Was he from the World War II generation, or was he a little bit younger than that? Uh, you know, probably slightly younger, but his big claim to fame was that he had mixed uh, the Sweet Baby James album. Interesting. Uh, I just, you know, I mean, I just, my, the overarching question is, <clears throat> how much creative control did you have early on in your career? I, I just, so many things came in, in a, a little bit after you kind of were getting your sea legs, but I just, I just remember like Mike Clark, the drummer from uh, the Headhunters being in the studio and producers in like the mid 70s, 75, 76, just saying like, hey, play straight beats. Don't play yourself. Just play straight beats. Play what the last hit was 
on right. the you know, and it was like this. I mean, again, I'm surrounded in you know Howard Roberts records and Winton Kelly records, and just you know, like the idea of like I don't want to. I don't mean it to sound careless or sloppy, but there, it was like they took all the individuality away, and I, I and I just wonder how much of of that flexibility or creative control did you have early on in your career? Well, you know, early on in my career, I was only a second engineer and I was just learning. So I was learning and watching the other guys record. You know, when I finally did did go on my own, uh, you know, after five years with Freddie Perrin, uh, you know, then I had creative control. But in terms of the musicianship, you know, you got to find the the right cats, you know, it's like one of my early gigs was with, you know, Paul Stallworth, Keltner, and Korchmar. Oh, my God. And, and, you know, and I'm 19 years old, and it's one of the first things I've ever asked to do. It's one of the first sessions I ever did, probably the second one for as far as a tracking date. And I'm, and I'm sitting there listening to Jim Keltner play, and I'm going, oh, my God, you know. I mean, this guy's unbelievable. I've never heard anything like this. <laughs> you know, so I'm, I'm freaking out because it's such a deep groove to everything. These guys are such pros, you know, and I wasn't old enough to understand that yet, you know. Oh, this is so great. Wait, hold on. You were, were you privy to the uh, record plant, Monday nights at the record plant? There were these pretty, it was Jim Keltner night. Like they, that's kind yeah, you of, know, yeah. yeah, I heard you talk about that. And no, I was not privy to that, but I did work at the record plant, uh, uh, you know, in those days with Bob Hughes, uh, Bob sort of hired me as his own assistant and he would take me every, he was an independent producer engineer. He took me to every studio in town. So I not only got to learn all the different consoles and studios, but I got to meet all the studio owners and managers too. Let's just go through that. Can you talk? I, I would love you to talk about. I mean, there was like producers' workshop, and there was. Uh, can you talk about the different studios? Ultimately, like what kind of consoles? What was your favorite one? I mean, to me, like it was just so cool back then. I mean, you 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 could. Well, you take you take it. I mean, I was born in '78. You know, I mean, to me, like this is all um, a fantasy, and I realize. Sometimes the fantasy is better than the reality. But can you talk about some of the studios? Maybe not necessarily the, uh, you know, the just the off-the-beaten-path ones that, and the kind of technology you were working with. Yeah, well, you know, like a very famous studio is called Sunset Sound. Right. Uh, right across from Crossroads of the World on Sunset. And, you know, that place, Tutti Camerata, the owner, he built that place in the 50s, and the, the consoles in there were like, handmade and hand-designed. Oh, my God. Company. So, and there wasn't a lot of electronics in, in, the, in the, the signal path. So when you would plug a microphone in, it was almost like plugging a mic into the machine. It was so <laughs> clean and punchy, you know. And But then there's, you know, other... The, Neve, the old Neve consoles became my favorite consoles because I could really get a great sound with the right mics and with that console and with those mic pre's were so excellent, you know, kind of the toopy sound, and, uh, you know, those were great. And then, it, you know, by the 80s, people, a lot of people, companies were putting out consoles that were not that good of sounding. Like, I never cared for, there's a console called a, an SSL, which is solid-state logic, which is like a transistor console. And I never, I never 
uh, went to those rooms because I I couldn't get a, a good sound out of them. Explain why it was it be I mean was that what was there a synthetic component to these watered down consoles? I yeah. mean what what was the deal? It was it lacked that well, sort of this. I, I just would love you to talk. This is just really important for future generations. Well, the reason that I never. Uh, took the digital was because when the digital stuff came out, I did a, a one album on a, on the first thing that came out was a Mitsubishi put out a digital 32 track on half inch tape. Mm. And I cut an album at the studio and it, at the end result, it just sounded horrible. It was the worst thing I ever did. And I went, you know, I'm never going to do this again. So I just said from now on, I'm just going to use analog stuff. I'm going to use what the stuff I love that I know I can get a great sound on and I'm not going to even mess with these other places and stuff. So I just knew where every Neve console and the API automated processes console was one of the great boards. That's what they had at A&M Records. And that was another really great sounding console. So either one of those two, I would just always prefer to work on. And, and you know, by the 80s, I, I always did work on those. You know? <clears throat> and I guess at that point, I mean, it's fair to say that um, analog. I don't know how to put this. I mean, today all you hear about is how expensive it is to record on analog, and um, it, like when was it still relatively inexpensive to record using analog gear at that time? Yeah, well, that's probably the uh, early to mid '90s is when that started happening. And then, uh, you know, Pro Tools came out, and uh, I never, I just refused to use them. I would just say, look, if you want me, if you want to hire me, you're going to have to let me go to where I want to go. I love this, dude. You know, the last 10 or 15 years of my career was like, usually at Capitol Records, because they had needs in every room, you know, with the computerized flying faders and stuff. So that's where I kind of went. But, uh, you know, uh, back then it was just like, you know, you, you know, I had preferences that where I could, I knew I could get a great sound. You know, like in the early two thousands, uh, I got a call from Richard Perry, producer, mm-hmm. and he says, uh, are, he says, are you the analog guy? <laughs> and I said, and I laughed. I said, yeah, I am. And he goes, well, I'm cutting this record with Rod Stewart, and the guy that I was going to use wants to cut it all on Pro Tools. And he said, I hate the sound of Pro Tools. And I said, well, so do I. And <laughs> turns out a guy that a studio owner at the Studio 56, who has also had an old Neve in there, he, you know, told Richard about me. And so Richard called me, and I ended up doing that project with him. So, wow. so I just never got into the digital thing. You know, with, with analog, and especially through the Neve and Studer and stuff, when you played something loud in the, in the control room through those big monitors... It felt so good. Yeah, it was just like you know, is is pounding on you, and it was just so clean and punchy. But then, if you do that in a studio on Pro Tools, it sounds harsh, and it it hurts your ears because it's so bright, and it's just, and it doesn't have any real clean, punchy bottom. It's got kind of a muddy bottom, and and I just never, I could never get into that. You know, I'm fascinated. I think. Good stuff. I, well, I think that that's spot on. I, it, it's so the bottom end in these digital recordings. Uh, there's just no definition of the bay. It's exactly. all muddy down there. It's it's that's really. What I mean, yeah. And I and what I don't understand is why cats are a, that. I mean, even my daughters. I mean, they're exposed to a lot of music that 
you helped cultivate and but still I, I, I it bothers me that younger cats can't even hear that or why they think that that actually sounds good well man I think that it's what you are used to what you know and you know like I grew up with that sound and I you know I was always into sound and stuff and uh, you know I think it's whatever you get used to like in other words cats that are born later and are just subjected to stuff that's done on Pro Tools, well, they don't know any difference. Absolutely. No, I mean, it's, it, well, I guess, I mean, that's very, that's, it's, it's like, it's like they've had digital beats crunched into their ears for decades. They don't know any better. Exactly. It's like, if you don't know what it's like, you, you can't miss it. You that's know right. What I mean? <laughs> you know, and it's, it's also these days, you know, it's like some, some guys I'll ask, I'll say, well, do you have a stereo? And they go, no. And I go, oh, well, okay. You know, and they go, no, I listen to my stuff off my iPhone, you know. And I think, well, you know, that's a drag, too, you know. People ask me, you know, will you, you know, email me some tracks? And I go, well, you know, as soon as, as, soon as you put it in the digital domain and it gets compressed and then it goes to the other guy and then it's uncompressed, well, it's different. It changes. It's not, it's not as good anymore, you know. So there's that part of it, too. So. Um. I, I, this is really important. Going back to to Brother Hughes, I mean, was he was he in hand and glove with Freddie Perrin? Did, did, were those mostly? No, no, he 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 only knew Freddie because Freddie had come into uh, the studio I started at was owned by this cat Tom Wilson, mm. who was a famous record producer. Yeah, are you kidding? That the same Tom Wilson who discovered Miles and Dylan? Exactly. Oh yeah, that Tom Wilson. Wow. Yeah, that Tom Wilson. Yeah. Yeah. So. You know, the day I walked into that studio, you know, right pretty much fresh out of high school, I walked right into the lobby, uh, you know, and I said to the lady at the desk, uh, I said, I'm going to work here now, and you don't have to pay me anything, but, you know, it's like I'll work here and I'll do whatever needs to be done for however long it takes, and you don't have to pay me anything. And I hear behind me there's a guy on the couch who starts laughing. And I turn around like, almost insulted and he goes oh because uh, you want to work here uh, uh for free and i said yeah and he goes he goes well see that closet right there he goes go clean out that closet then oh my! <laughs> i went right over cleaned out the closet well it was tom wilson sitting on the couch oh that's great he had just bought that studio a couple months before i walked in there the beginning of 74 and uh, that was called angel city sound which is what he called it. Angel and, uh, City Sound. This is so... Wait, I only know him from his experiences uh, on the East Coast. I cannot right. believe... Right. So he had just kind of moved out to the West Coast, or he had just bought this... Yeah, he, 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 he moved out here. He had a, a couple backers, and he bought this studio, which was called uh, Sound Recorders very famous studio right on the corner of Yucca and Argyle in Hollywood right. across the parking lot from the Capitol Tower. And and that's where I found out that, you know, uh, there was a studio there and I'd gone to this seminar and the cat that was the, this, this guy, Bill Lazarus, that was the studio manager said, oh yeah, this is where I studio manage. So the next day I just decided I'm going in there, you know. That is so, wait, you just walk, you had no connection there. You're just like, I'm going to. No. I'm going to work here, and I'll work oh, for free. Only, only that the guy that, that I'd seen the night before was giving a little seminar at Crossroads of the World uh, about, uh, you know, the studio business. And he said, oh, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm the uh, manager over at, at Angel City Sound 
on Yucca and Argyle, and I just went, oh. Well, okay, uh, that's where I'm going tomorrow. <laughs> Dude, that's one of the best. That would, in today's 21st century lingo, that's a non-paid internship. This oh, is, yeah. this yeah. is class. So wait, 1970. But then I, but then I yeah. finally got paid like about two months later. They, they had a, an assistant there that was a staff guy. And Tom says to this guy, after two months of me being there, and I worked my ass off for many hours a day. And he says, hey, Rick, uh, you know, Steve's, doing all your work you're coming in late leaving early and stuff so we're going to split your salary of 150 with steve and give him half your salary oh my god and this this guy got pissed and just walked out so i went oh cool i'll, I'll get a buck 50 yeah a buck 50 and but no i only got the 75 that's they they, they kept but, the other that that is but, you know, that's cool because that was my internship that was my that was how i learned how to do it i mean i figured it's it's free schooling you know well, let's talk about that. I mean, what, can you just talk about an early time there when you were way out over your skis and you somehow figured out how to make, not that you were necessarily overseeing a session, but can you just talk about basically when you learned to trust your instinct and intuition and, and, and saved a, a, a session from completely falling apart? Well, uh, saved a session? Not really. You know, I can tell you that when I got thrown into the attitude session, um, I, well, I mean, this is just those cats. I I wasn't really equipped to do it, but Tom was comping them the studio time. He was going, you know, you guys can come in like at nine o'clock at night and work all night. Oh my! Uh, and, you know, for uh, and, and you can do it for free, but but you know, and we'll give you this guy, our new guy. Uh, yeah, the new guy. I do. This is so you know, special. This is I so unbelievable. Knew how to plug in microphones, much less how to. <laughs> you know, cut a rhythm track. So, so that's why, you know, the other day, I don't know if I told you this, but the reason I looked up your, that I found your interview with Paul Stallworth was was because I've been cleaning out a bunch of old cassettes. Dude, I'm, go ahead. This is so sick. Go ahead. song on it. It had uh, one of those songs that with the attitudes recorded that I recorded with him. So I I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to see if I can find Paul See if he wants, if he has a copy of this, or if he wants a copy. I mean, it's almost been 50 years, you know. That's when I, your your interview came up, and I watched that, and I went, oh, shit, it's so great to hear Paul talk again, you know, because we had such fun on those sessions. And, uh, you know, that was how I kind of found you. Well, I'm so, I was going to ask you, how, I'm like, did he get, I'm like, this is so magical. Uh, first of all, you know Paul passed away. You know, after I talked to you, I looked up, you know, I went further down, scrolled down, and I, I saw, you know, Paul Stallworth obituary, and yeah. I thought, oh, man. So, yeah, I, I, I read that he had died in, what, 2021, right? Well, and I and, and Keltner is a, is a sage for me, and so he's been doling out all these cats, numbers like Stallworth and cats like that. So I actually yeah. have another interview that I haven't released yet with Stallworth as well. But Yeah, we, he said you, you said you were going to do part two. Yeah, we did part two. I haven't put it up yet. Oh. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I, you know, I mean, okay, so I just want to get something straight here. Um, because that was recorded, or I mean, that that label was through George Harrison's Dark Horse label. And exactly, yeah. Right. So, so how did the, and, and, and again, a lot of those jam sessions with David Foster, uh, they were happening at the rec, at, at Jim Keltner night. Um, right. With these two, I can't remember the guys, I'll have to look up their names, but. Um, so that was sort of the Lee gen- Kiefer, you mean? Lee Kiefer? 
Nah, I'll get the names for you. I'll, I'll look it up. They, yeah. they, you, you'll know who they are. But, but I mean, they ba- yeah. basically, that's the genesis of Attitudes. But then, had they already cut one album before you got in there with them? Or was this the beginning of their sessions? Well, this is like, you know, summer, fall of 74. And I don't think that first album comes out till 75. Absolutely. And so, so I'm thinking that it's before that comes out. Although, you know, I worked on that song that's called, uh, what was it called, Sweet Summer Music? Oh, yeah, yep. I, I, he, he, had, he had put that, that track was cut, and we did overdubs on that. And we did overdubs on a few other songs that were on that first album. But the song that I cut, well, I tracked the whole thing with those guys, with Keltner and, and uh, Foster wasn't there, but it was just the, those three guys. And, and we just cut this one song, and I, I looked for it on either one of those records, and, and it was not on there. So I figured maybe Paul didn't have it, you know? I love that. You, dude, the, those tapes, I cannot imagine. So, but that was not, so once that cat got pissed and left, and then all of a sudden you were on salary, what was, the, what was your, the first session that you, I mean, even if you were, uh, who were who, were you working with Hughes at that point, or or like what were some yeah, of yeah pretty pretty much? But let me let me uh, let you know that yeah. when I first get there, this, there's a mastering room in there upstairs with this beautiful Neumann mastering lathe up there, and Bill Lazarus, the chief engineer, is like the, the mastering guy, so he's cutting lacquers up there. So when I the first thing I really do is he teaches me how to cut lacquers in the disc room. Wow. And, and they had a whole, you know, they had a clientele of Joe Bet Music, which was Motown. And back in 74, cassettes didn't exist yet. And, uh, and if you wanted to take a copy home, you had to take a reel-to-reel, quarter-to-quarter track. Oh, this is legendary. Of, hardly nobody had a reel-to-reel machine in their house, <laughs> you know, or in their offices and stuff. It's very rare. So what Motown did was they'd send over, you know, like 20 reels of tape and, and with a, a paper on each top of each one saying, I need five copies of this, four copies of this, six copies of this. So they were all like publishing demos by artists that were signed to Motown. So I would go in, I would work in the studio, you know, all day, like, you know, cleaning up and stuff, which was my gig at the beginning. Right. And then at, you know, seven o'clock at night, eight o'clock, I would go upstairs and I would cut lacquers all night long until four or five in the morning. I'd crash on the floor for a couple hours and get up around eight and then go down to the studio and clean up the control room in the studio from the, the session from the night before or the day before, getting ready for the next session. And then, of course, Fleetwood Mac would come in. My God, this is my... So, before that, were you... <clears throat> were you able to... I mean, you obviously... This was a the music found you was clearly your calling. Were you um, like getting into the as a teenager, or you were as a young boy? Were you able to get into the whiskey a go go? What kind of music were you seeing live that made you fall in love with the whole process of recording? Well, well first of all, you know when I'm like five years old, I have two sisters that are eleven and twelve years older than me. So when I'm about five or six, they're uh, They've already, they're, you know, they're teenagers. They're, they've got 45s. And every time uh, they would leave the house, they'd go, Steve, don't, don't you touch our stuff, you know. <laughs> and I'd go, yeah, okay. And I'd go in and I'd play the records on both sides. And because I couldn't read yet, I would take a crayon and I would mark 
on the label of the, the songs that I like. Right. That I want to go back to, you know. I love it. A lot of them, a lot of them turned out to be Elvis Records, Everly Brothers, Buddy Holly, uh, a lot of Sun Record labels. I, I remember memorizing the label, you know, the Sun Records label and the RCA Black label and stuff. Absolutely. So that's kind of how that all started, and then I. I learned how to play guitar when I was about 10, and uh, and then by the time I'm like 15, I'm starting a band and doing that whole old deal. But in high school, I was mainly going to the Troubadour a lot, seeing all the bands there. Interesting, like like a lot of groups played there in the seven in the early 70s. I'm wondering, did I think I think, uh, that was <laughs> I'm not sure if you were at this gig, but. Before the Headhunters, Herbie had a band called M1 Dishi, and I think... You know the Headhunters, by the way? I've interviewed all those cats, except Herbie. Because the Headhunters recorded at Angel City back when I was there. What? <laughs> they were there. I remember, you know, because I'm a huge Beatle fan. Sure. And, and uh, I remember the, one of the cats was telling me how they opened up for the Beatles, and I said, really? You know, I Whoa. think they were on the 65 or 6 tour. Wow. Cannibal and the Headhunters, you mean, right? Well, no, they were talking about say, which one. Who are you talking about? Cannibal and the Headhunters. Yeah, so that's I'm not even that's off my radar. I'm talking about uh, you know Herbie Hancock and the Headhunters. Oh, yeah. Sorry, man. No, no, no. Oh, I, first of all, no, you hit oh. me. Now I got a new whole. No, no. Herbie, Herbie's. I remember Herbie had this incredible band called M1 Dishi. This is before you know he re, oh. he redid Watermelon Man and they had that crossover hit. Um, oh, yeah. He was, this was a very explosive fusion band, but very avant-garde. And I remember him, uh, he was at the Troubadour, and I think he opened for the Pointer Sisters, and he mm -hmm. couldn't believe, that there was barely any crowd for his band, but when the Pointer Sisters played, it was just packed, and he was just like, at that point, he's like, I gotta become more commercial. You know, it was just... Uh, yeah. <laughs> but you must have, I mean, like... The Questkin Jug Band was there. I mean, obviously James Taylor. I, I guess were you seeing yeah. were, were were people playing electric rock in that place, or was it more acoustic? Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. It was like you know, I I remember seeing you know uh, the, the two of the Eagles playing with Linda Ronstadt. Yes, so that was their her opening act or her uh, backing band were you know Henley and Fry. Wow, and uh, you know, and and I saw that and James Taylor. I saw a bunch. I saw Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks. You know, all the time. Oh, absolutely. I that band. Yeah, and, great and, band. Uh, yeah, Loggins and Messina played there. And uh, uh, my buddy from high school, his sister worked at MCA, so we got tickets when Elton John went there the last time he played there. I got to see him in there. So, you know, I don't know if you've been in that room, but it's a really small room. It's perfect for that kind of stuff. You're right. But were you also into, like, uh, you know, when I think back, like, like, were you, I mean, I like to, I'd like to think that I'd be hip enough to be into this kind of music, all the jazzers I've interviewed, but like, were you into early Weather Report, Mahavishnu Orchestra, were you into that kind of stuff? You know, I, I knew who all those people were, but it wasn't who I listened to. Totally, you man, know? totally. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel I'm like I would have... The Beatles yeah. and, and the British Invasion stuff, and that's, that's kind of what my thing was. Did you see, like, uh, John Mayall and those cats? Yeah, okay, John Mayall came to Angel City, did an album. I got to work on that as a second. Oh, my uh, God. Frank, Frank Clark was the engineer, and uh, 
in his band was this cat named Sugarcane Harris. Oh my, dude, my hero, dude. The nasty. Oh my god, he was like, I, you know, as a kid, I just look, I'm going, oh my god, this guy's unbelievable, you know. Dude, everything was flowing out of that cat, man. Yeah, I know. And then, and then Soko was on drums, and uh, and you know, I, I really dug what they were doing. So on the weekends, I would go in, and I would put up the multi tracks of John Mayles and of Fleetwood Macs, and I practice mixing them. Wow! And nobody nobody knew about it, you know. Well, go a little so, bit. I'm not, I'm not. This is not. Can you go a little bit deeper on what you what that means? What what were you doing exactly? Well, yeah, you know, putting up a multi track. I'm trying to. You know, pull up the kick and snare and try to get a balance. Oh, I see, I see. Uh, you know, and figure out, you know, where the instruments go. And, and the stuff that I liked, of course, I would turn it up. And, and uh, you know, and like when Mick Fleetwood calls me in the 90s and he says, Hey, man, you know, uh, do you have any outtakes from the album we did together at Angel City? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, man, I do because I... I used to go in on the weekends and, and play your tapes, you know. <laughs> and of course, if I would have screwed them up, it would have been, you know, the end of me. But, but so I said, yeah, I got some rough mixes, but I said they're really bad. <laughs> that is so. So I, I mean, part of my fantasy, Steve, is that, um, you know, would you say like, okay, like um, Fleetwood's kind of a different deal, but for a lot of the for the, a lot of the Freddie Perrin stuff, um, you know, did you know Gene Page, by the way? Sure, Gene was there a lot. Like, like, to me, like, I'm obsessed, even though I've talked to Dennis Coffey and, you know, all the... Hey, I, I worked on the Dennis Coffey album, man. Which, Instant Coffee? Yeah, I, I, wor- I, I worked on the Finger Licking Good oh album. Oh, my God, dude. With Bob Hughes, was producing... And I was, uh, you know, assisting engineering, and we did it all at Hollywood Sound. And uh, Dennis had, you know, like two big trunks full of guitars, man. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I was doing nothing but plugging in different guitars for him all the time. And that was a really fun guitar project since I, you know, played guitar a little bit. You know. Well, no, I'm, what yeah. I was, what I, what, what I wanted you to talk about, especially, you know, because I uh, like. Motown in Detroit, they had a very interesting way of, they'd all plug into this direct box, everybody, you know, and, and, right. uh, in, in this studio and, and those early, you know, Gene Pella, Gene Pilo or, you know, David T. Walker, Wilton Felder, the, uh, you know, even Gadsden. I mean, wh- were you primarily you James Gadsden? Yeah. Gad, James Gadsden. Yeah. I did a lot of records, you know, he worked with Freddie a lot. I did my biggest hits with Gats and playing drums. And, you know, I got my Grammy the year you were born, man. <laughs> Yo, man, this is so deep, man. I, first of all, I was 20, I was only 24 at the time. We're, so but, how, know, how much? I remember Gats came in, Gats yeah. came in one day and I'm setting up his drums and uh, Freddie goes, okay, this is going to be a disco groove. And I go, hey, James, what, what is a disco, what does disco mean? And he starts playing this figure on his hi-hat. You know, <laughs> and he goes, that's disco. Oh, my God, okay. dude. <laughs> no, James, James would always tape his wallet to his snare drum because he wanted it to be really dead, you know. He didn't want any ring out of it. He just went, gang, you know. All right, this is and why I, I love was, talking I to you. Thought, that was, I, he was the only guy I ever saw do that. <laughs> Was primarily though, like they had a pretty strict formula. 
with Motown. Can you talk about how they recorded it? Was was there was it basically laying down rhythm tracks and then and then having the vocals come in, or was it the vocals first and then those cats would come in? Because oh no, it was all rhythm tracks first. And and I got to say that you know I'm not at Motown. Freddie left Motown. He bought a studio right. in 1976, and the the guy that was the maintenance guy at Angel City called me one day and he says, "Hey man, Freddie just bought a studio." Uh, on Ventura Boulevard, and he says, well, why don't you come down? I'm sure Freddie would love to see you, because in the in 74 and 5, when I worked with Freddie, he was at Angel City doing, like, the miracles and stuff. And so oh, my God, dude. Freddie, and then, and then he buys a studio, because he, he was just one of the clients at Angel City, so uh, he, I, I, I didn't see him there for a while, and he bought a studio, and he hired Barry, Steinpress to be his maintenance guy, and Barry called me up, and he goes, "Hey, you know, we just we, Freddie just got in here, and we're you know fixing up the room, and you should come over." So I went over, just thinking that you know, hey, maybe Freddie will offer me a gig, you know, like hmm. cleaning up or or you know something, you know. But Freddie says, "Well, come on in and look at the control room," and then he he sits me down in this in the in the chair at the console. He says, "Hey, man, mix this tune for me." You know, and it and it was this Tavares tune called "Heaven Must Be Missing an Angel." Oh my God! You know, so I start. Yeah, I just jump in, start mixing it. You know, I had about two years under my belt by then, so I kind of knew what I was doing. And so, Freddie just leaves the room and comes back about four hours later, and he goes, "Let me hear what you got." I played it for him, and he goes. Hey, you want to be my house engineer here? And I went, yeah. <laughs> so he offers me the the head engineer gig at his new studio, which I I was there for the next five years. And we cut, you know, I cut reunited with him, and uh, we cut the two Saturday Night Fever songs, which was uh, oh if I can't have you and more than a woman, I cut with Freddie in there. Wait, hold on, with with with, with the Bee Gees. No, no, Bee Gees. No, I cut. Alon Elliman did. If I can't have you. Oh, that's and, right. Uh, and uh, um, Tavares did more than a woman. Wow, and, this uh, is so. It, this it is was sort of a. It was sort of a throwaway project too, because at the beginning, Freddie, you know, they sent him the script and stuff, and he didn't want to do it. And and he was telling me about because you know I I was a big Bee Gees fan from the '60s. You know, I really wasn't hip to the Bee Gees disco. Thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you were the more the blues-based stuff. Yeah. Yeah, you know the early, you know, uh, got to get a message to you stuff, the vocal harmony stuff. And so I'm telling Har- Freddie, I said, "Well, do you know who the Bee Gees are?" And he goes, "Yeah, well, they did this album. It's kind of disco." He goes, "I go, no. Back in the '60s, did you ever hear like this song, that song?" And he goes, "No, I don't know any of that." <laughs> so. So I brought some some of that those records in and played them for him and he goes oh okay that's what these guys do and, but they weren't doing that anymore they were doing the new disco thing and uh, and Freddie was a very straight guy you know so he says well I turned it down and I said well why you know because I was thinking man this will be so much fun man and he says well you know he's very straight and he says that ah, you know they got the f word in there about in the first seven pages they. They say the F word like 10 times in this movie. And I went, oh, oh yeah, well, big deal, you know? Yeah, at that time, so, you know, it's funny because t- today's world, that's not a big deal. But even then... No. Uh, well, especially for him. Right, if you're square, yeah. A, totally. Yeah, he's sort of a religious cat and stuff. And, you know, didn't didn't really drink 
at all, you know. And, and so, you know, and, and so I kind of talked him into it and said, oh, man, the Bee Gees, man, we, we, you know, we should do this album. Oh, you talked him into it? Yeah, he was like, was not going to do it. So then a few days later, he comes back and he goes, well, you know, I offered, I made him an offer that they were not going to, you know, agree to. And I said, oh, really? What was it? He said, well, I asked him for a quarter point on the movie and a quarter point on the record. And, and he goes, and Dan, Dan, he says, they they agreed to it. So, of course, Freddie didn't know at the time it was going to sell 40 million copies, and he was going to make about $20 million. I cannot believe this story. Well, I, what can I say? I mean... We were, we were doing a, a record with Tavares called Future Bound, and that was our main project. And the Saturday Night Fever stuff was secondary. It was like, okay, well, we fit Tavares, the Tavares brothers went home, so now let's pull up this, uh, you know, Saturday, these two Saturday Night Fever tunes and work on those. It was sort of secondary, like, well, we'd do that later kind of stuff. I mean, you know, you never know. Well, no, because this is, this is the magic of it all. Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, that's like one of many stories of a throwaway thing that turned into just the biggest hit in the world, you know? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> you know, I, I'm sure you worked with a, a cat named David Kemper, the drummer. David Kemper? I don't, I don't think so. Interesting. Okay, so Kemper, uh, um, really, uh, I mean, uh, kind of on the on the scene well before you were um, a great drummer for um, uh, Ralph Carmichael with um, and um, also um, played with Joan Armitrading and then ultimately joined the Jerry Garcia Band in 83, but, I mean, a, a nasty rock fusion drummer. And he, I want to read you this, and uh, and then get your 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 um, your take. He said, um, he said, Glenn Johns always got a great sound. It was always real open. Not a lot of mics used on the drums. He would do it with three microphones: bass, drum, mic, and a right and left stereo overhead. Real old style, oh, yeah. but he knew where I'm to totally put. Totally hip to that thing. Well, I want I'm going to read you this, and then I want you to riff on it. He said. Okay. He said, it reminds me of the way records used to sound. I was an engineer for a short period of time. A guy named Ron Malo taught me. He was the head engineer at Chess Cadet with Chuck Berry, Hal and Wolf, and those cats. What the old guys would do, they would set up a room full of musicians. They'd see who needed more bass or more treble in their guitar amp. They did it to, to sound great in the room. Then they would mic the room instead of miking individuals. That's the way they heard it. That is an old... That's, that's totally old style, yeah. So explain to me, the Steve Pulliot, how did you move away from that old style but yet still stay true to a an aesthetic of getting that that leakage, not enough, not a lot of leakage, but enough where like it, it was that feeling that we talked about when you played it back, it felt so good. Right, well... Let me let me preface this whole thing by saying, you know, when I cut tracks with Freddie, it was like cutting tracks with no one else because Freddie liked to cut a huge rhythm section with maybe three guitars, couple keyboards, percussionists, wow. and the room is packed, and and I'm I'm miking everything, but and Freddie was a chart guy. He would he would write up rhythm charts for everybody. What do you so, what do you what do you, what do you write what do you what do you write like sketches and then let the guys kind of improvise off of that or they were like no, he didn't want improvisation he wanted 
to write the, the note-for-note charts right. for every, each guy. Wow. He wanted three guitar players like Dean Parks was one of them that played there all the Don time. Don Peak, uh, Jay Graydon, and those cats were all like three guys sitting together. And what Freddie would do was they'd run it down. And Freddie would like be walking around the studio listening to what each guy was playing. <laughs> and then he would make changes to the charts. Like the guitar players would be playing you know, complimentary stuff to each other. And he would go, oh, wait a minute, no, put, play an E-flat there instead of a B. And then he'd, he'd take a pencil, change their chart, and then they would, then he, as he did that, they would continue to run it down. And he would, he would change the piano chart, he would change the bass line, he would, he would just do it so it, it, it all fit together for him, you know, the way he wanted it. And that is we unbelievable. Track, usually by, you know, take two or three, we had the, the master track done because there was a lot of pre-production involved. Now, later on, you know, what I did for the rest of my career was four guys would come in, bass drums and a guitar and maybe a keyboard or something, and, uh, you know, bass player would play in the control room direct and, you, and listen to the monitors, and then the drummer would be in the room, and, you know, the guitar player would be in an ISO booth, and, and they would improvise, you know. Freddie was the only guy I, I worked with who... who use charts for everything. I'm really fascinated by this parent uh, paradigm because he's incredible. He was a genius. I mean, well, first of all, he was obviously a genius. I mean, his ears were, I think he had probably had the biggest ears of anybody ever. Let me tell you about his ears, man. We're doing a thing with, we did a record with the spinners. Right. And so the, the five spinners are out there singing a vocal part. Now, Freddie was a huge baseball fan. He had you know, special seats in the club level of Dodger Stadium, oh which he gave me quite often and gave me, you know, World Series tickets too. But but the thing was, oh he would be sitting God. there with an earplug in, in his right ear listening to the ball game. And there'd be five guys singing five-part harmony in the studio. And while he's listening to the ball game, he's correcting their notes. Oh, my. Dude, this is insane. No, no, Jerry, Jerry, you got to, no, that's the wrong note. You sing this note, and he'd go, bah, and then, and he would be doing that while he's listening to the game. I mean, I just went, oh, my God, Freddie, but jeez. Now, but I want to go, because that is, you're right. Obviously, you're 100% right. There was a lot of pre-production. Um my generation and younger perseverate on post-production. Why? Now, my, my feeling, and, and, and as a result, it takes four years to make a freaking album. Was it just like, was it just like the fact that there was so much work happening that it required a lot of pre-production because you didn't have time for post-production? Well, I mean, with Freddie, it was one of, also one of the only guys, because he owned his own studio. He right. never had to worry about a budget right. or a time limit. He was like, some of those tunes we'd have up, set up on the console for two or three weeks, and we'd come in and do mixes of them you know, every day. Uh, another thing about Freddie, since he wrote all the early Jackson 5 hits, like I Want You Back, right. yeah. I mean, as a songwriter, the guy's brilliant. And then as a producer, he's brilliant, too. But, you know, and he wrote Reunited, and he wrote Shake Your Groove Thing, which was, you know, two of my biggest hits with him that he wrote, wow. you know. And because uh, the Bee Gees wrote the, uh, the two songs for Saturday Night Fever. So we were just sort of, you know, cutting those songs. But, uh, but you know, uh, Freddie was just such an amazing songwriter that... Uh, 
But I, I'm just, it's so fascinating because, you know, like, cats will just spend endless amounts of time in post-production and suck all the soul out of the record. I mean, it's like, yeah. I mean, like, it's just so mind-boggling to me that, you know, you'd have the, you'd have the tracks and then it was like, well, that sounds great. You know, we don't, and, and again, I wonder, I wonder if technology if there's just too much available now to, well, you know, I'll tell you one thing yeah. when the pro tools thing came in, you know, a lot of my close friends are all studio musicians, you know, by this point in time, you know, right. And, uh, you know, one of my good friends, bass player friend, incredible bass player, he'd go, well, you know, we went in and cut this track, uh, you know, uh, last night. And then when I went in this morning, the groove was completely gone. You know, these guys are all deep groove players and they're doing it on Pro Tools and then this guy is like... Oh you know, my God, It's make, you're making me sick to my you're stomach. Making it all straight, you know? So straight, man. Yeah, and so we started calling it the Groove Eliminator. <laughs> Dude, there's got... That's got it's absolutely the, the truth. I mean, yeah. <laughs> when you... So outside of Attitudes, at Angel... What was the... Angels, Angel City. What was... The first time they were like, "All right, pull it. Here's the keys to the car. It's on you, man." Uh, what was what was your question? The, the you know, outside of attitudes, I'm wondering about oh, yeah. the first session where you, it was you were the master of your own domain. Uh, well, let's see. It was probably you know Tom Wilson had a whole uh, bunch of artist that he signed to his production company wow. and he would he would have me uh almost every other morning he would have me go in there and do a nine to twelve with one of his singer songwriters and i would invariably you know just do a live to two track mic the piano and the guy and a vocal mic and the guy would just play his songs and so tom would have copies of his songs like uh you know cats would come in and they go yeah i wrote these two songs last night and i'm I mean, I'm going to record them for Tom today. So I did a lot of that. Who know? was who was on his uh, his roster? Well, there was a, a. They were all incredible players, but I never really heard of them again. But I do have copies of that stuff, dude. That time. is so insane, man. And I took copies of everything that I that I loved, you know. Oh and it was so God. much of it because Tom Tom had an ear for that stuff, you know. There was a cat named Cecil Doty that I that I've worked with who were writing songs all the time. A guy named Keith Green. Which whoa, whoa, stop right there. I cannot believe God. you just, I cannot believe. You know, my fifth book just got published and uh, my two interviews with the legendary Hadley Hawkinsmith are in that. And who's that? Had, well, Hadley, who's that? Hadley uh, was, uh, was in Oklahoma City uh, and uh, sobering up. Uh, with at, playing at the Open Door Mission with Fletch Wiley and Harlan Rogers and Billy Maxwell, and Andre Crouch walked in and was like, "I want this to be my band." This is the this is right around the time that you were at Angel City. Um, oh yeah. But he just talked a lot about doing later Keith Green albums. So this is th you're telling me early Keith, like the earliest Keith Green you were you were recording. Well, you know, only only fairly recently, like five or six years ago, uh, was I you know. I just, I went, you know, I never heard of Keith Green again, and I mentioned it to this one guy, and he goes, oh, Keith Green, yeah, he was, a, a, like, sort of did religious songs. Right. And, and well, 
you know, I never heard of him again after I did these demos with him. Dude, I, that is so insane. Demo, and I still have the demo of this one song that he did called Lady She's a Gambler at the Silver Saloon, man. And it's just, and it's rocking. I mean, well, John, you know, man, I got to tell you, man, if that's from the Angel City time period, I got to tell you, you're sitting yes. on some gold, interesting, weird gold, because, you know, ultimately he was a Jewish cat who converted to Christianity yeah. Wound up doing yeah. a lot of work with D- him and Dylan collaborated, and he did a oh. he did a plethora of albums. I never knew that. Yeah, but it was I more like on. Knew, I always knew this guy was like so great, and I couldn't believe I never heard of him again. Right, because because they were doing it on uh you know those Christian labels, you know, and it, yeah, and yeah. I didn't I didn't follow that exactly. Guy. No, I, I cannot believe that cat was in Angel City. It was just oh, yeah. he, he was just singing his songs, and you were recording. Them. Yeah. Yeah, he was in there, me and him, man. He was great. So too. it's fair to say, though, that when Freddie... What was Freddie's studio called in 76? What was that was studio? Oh, Mom and Pop's Company Store. And what the heck are you... This is... Uh, was that the way it was titled on records, too? Yeah. Oh, my God. He, his production company was called MVP Records. He actually had a record label that was through Polydor. And it was called MVP Records. Of course, dude. Like like Fernando Valenzuela. You were probably yeah, seeing him at... Valuable players. Yeah. yeah, you were probably seeing Fernando at, at Dodger Stadium, too, you know? Absolutely. Of course. Unbelievable. Yeah. So, so the truth is this, that uh, <clears throat> the Wilson gig was cool, but you really weren't... Uh, they didn't really give... You weren't really a head engineer at that point. With, with at Freddy's, yeah, I was. No, 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 no. I mean, at oh, Tom, yeah, at Tom, and, that, and that's why you went up. Well, no, yeah. I, no, because uh, you know Bob Hughes really worked there a lot, but it, you know at that point in time, everybody was bringing their own engineers in. Right, so, right. But if but if Tom is close with somebody like he was with Paul Stallworth, he would just say, "Yeah, well, come on in, you know, Tuesday night, and and you can use the studio." And 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 Tom's looking at it like these guys are just going to jam and and cut some demos and shit. So that's kind of what that was. Dude, this is, first of all, I just want to tell you, because to, to a man, I haven't interviewed Foster yet, but uh, Kelder and Cooch both said the real star should have been Paul Stallworth. Yeah, well, he was he was in charge of everything, man. You know, he was calling the shots. It, as I looked at it, you know, I didn't know who those other cats were. I don't think they were even anybody yet, but... but to me, it was Paul's band. I mean, he's he's writing the songs and he's singing the songs and he's telling them what he wants on the songs. But of course, with those cats, he didn't really need to tell them anything. Absolutely, yeah, they they're all, all they very all elastic. Yeah, to do it, totally, you know? totally. And, and you know, one night I'm in the studio with Paul, just me and Paul. He's singing on one of the tracks, and he brought in his pit bulls. He has two pit bulls, right? <laughs> he leaves them in the control room, and the, and I didn't know. It's like four in the morning, and the, the two dogs are sleeping under the console, you know, by my feet. And I, suddenly I stretch my leg out, and the dog just, he bites, he's oh. pulling on my pants and shit. So, and I hit the talk back and go, hey, Paul. And he hears the dog growling. He runs in, and he pulls the dogs out from under the console. And I mean, and I thought, oh, my gosh, you know. I didn't even remember they were there, you know? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> and, and Paul tied him up. And just, Paul put him in another room and locked him in another room for the rest of the night. But, I mean, that was just a moment that I'll never forget was when Paul's pit bulls started, you know, ripping at my, at my, at my pant leg, you know? 
Um, <laughs> that well, I mean, so many great stories here from you. I curious about, you know, there was some great. Um, did you? What was the earliest live record you recorded? When you said, "What do you mean?" Live? I mean, live like a live show. You mean live at a, at a venue? Yeah, like there are some Cal Jader records on Fantasy from the early seventies. Ed Bogus was involved. They, they, no, I, I don't think I really ever did a live album. Never. So, like, even with like oh. the Spinners and those cats, it was never like, no, "Hey, look. no, uh, uh-uh. wow." The closest I got to that was in the 80s. I worked at a studio called uh, Rudy Records, which was owned by Graham Nash. Wow. And, and all those cats would come in. You know, Crosby, Souls, Nash would come in and do stuff. And, and the Eagles had just done their final last live album. And they brought their tapes in. And there was like, you know, 20 uh, two-inch tapes in, in the control room. And I, I got the gig of doing rough mixes of everything because they wanted to listen to what it what they had right you know and there were no two-track mixes for them to listen to so i spent like three days over there just doing rough mixes of their live performance for their live album which uh it came out uh, i think in 81 or something and Interesting. it had a picture of a of an anvil of an anvil case on the front that was red that said the eagles on it i know i'm going to run into that album now so you you yeah. <clears throat> Um, wow. Uh, I think they broke up after that, you know, for 10 years. Sure. I mean, they, they had given it all they got. I mean, uh, do you remember, like, I just want, going back to the Saturday Night Fever being that it was in the real time and and not Mm -hmm. just in folkloric terms, um, like, were you in, did you go to the, did the movie theater and hear those songs or like, or did you hear, like, when did you first hear the songs that you did for, with Tavares and stuff? Well, I mean, first of all, they, they were automatic hits on the radio. So I was hearing them on the radio and in late 78, I went to Europe with a couple of my friends on a backpacking trip for like three weeks and everywhere I went in Europe, oh my there, God. there my stuff was. I'm in a I'm in a little pub in Germany, and it comes on the jukebox. That's what I'm talking you know? about. That's so that's in, magic. So and, and then earlier that year, I'm on the I'm on the beach down at Laguna, walking down the beach, and I can hear you know my my mixes coming through people's radios on the beach, you know, which was like wow, that was a mind blower. I, I want you to just sit and and uh, you know. As as a pro and a, and for a legacy point of view, like, what is that feeling like? I mean, to me, you know, when you accomplish something and then all of a sudden that butterfly effect occurs and all of a sudden you're hearing it and other people are getting off on it and getting inspired by it, you're hearing it hundred thousands of miles away in a different continent. What yeah. I mean, I know what you said; it's a mind blower, but. Yeah, how did it, did that change your did that change your life forever? I mean, I, to me that would just be forever because it was so. I mean, dude, literally, I forgot who I was talking to. At one time in this country, you would drive down the street in L.A. and there'd be billboards with Stanley Clark from School Days on there. It was yeah, like the right. hippest. This used to be a hip country, man. <laughs> I know. And, and boy, I tell you, I'm so grateful that I was alive at the time to be able to, to work, to live and work in that time frame of music, because I'm kind of disappointed with what music is today with digital, with, you know, sure. it's, uh, it's, there's more, 
you know, entertainment, dancing and stuff is more important than the music itself these days. So, you know. Are you able to, are you, like, because actually, I agree with you on the, on the, because there was great pop music in your time, you know, but like, you know, there's, are you accessible and affordable enough for hungrier cats if you were approached um, to record them in the sense, like, I feel like it's like, the equipment you you want and the aesthetic that you need, like, like even if even if you found some cats that you loved, they couldn't even afford it. You mean afford to pay for the room? I mean, just just in modern in modern day, you know, like where, like, I mean, are you? Well, I mean, I'm curious you know, about like, the kind of projects like I, that. I, yeah. You know, I I retired in 2017, but in 2015, I was at Capitol in Studio B mixing an album. And I went up to the um, to the lunchroom area, you know, where there's a couple booths, and there's one guy sitting in a booth, and it's James Taylor. And and I and I and I have my lunch, and I go sit in another booth, and James says, "Hey, come on over here." And I'd never met him before, and so we start talking about analog versus digital, about this very thing. And he right. goes, "You know, he goes, really, only guys like me can afford to come and cut analog." There you go. There you go. And I and I said and I said, "Yeah, I know." Believe me, I know, you know, so it was like, we certainly agreed on that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, of course, you're the only, that, that to me, it just sort of puts it all in perspective. Hey, listen, we just cooked for an hour. Um, let's put a button on this and, and then we'll pick up part two in a couple of weeks. All right. Yeah, man. Let me know when you want to do that. And, uh, and I'll get you, I, I already actually, I do, I, I will send you, I haven't. I don't have it on YouTube, but I'll send you another. I'll send you this, the set two with with Stallworth uh, through Spotify if you can access. That. Oh, thanks, man! I'd yeah. love to hear that. Yeah, I don't. It, I, from what I remember, the first one was pretty magic, and the second one, ah, eh, not so much. But still, uh, I feel well, so honored to have connected know, with that guy, man. Because you know what, he's well, he, you know, man. For me, you know, you had you had that static picture up there with those guys with George. Yeah. I, and, and of course, and I'm looking at Paul, and at all, and all the, the the memories are flowing back because I never heard from Paul again after that. Wow! You know, after after we did that little stint at Angel City, I never I never heard from him or of him. I, I mean, I never like a lot of cats over the years. You know, you run into him at different studios, sure, sure, different things, and all that stuff. But Paul never did. You know? No, that's and what I mean. I like, like. About well, no, because that's that's what I meant when it was very upsetting because he was on a, whether that's a good thing or not, he was on a, tr- a path, a track towards stardom, but he kind of fell off the rails. And that was the kind of the, the depressing thing for, for Keltner and those guys to see him not be in such great shape after that, you know? Yeah, because I know, you know, it's like if I hadn't found that one song on that cassette that was been in my garage for 40 years... I never would have even given it any thought. Well, no, but this is the Jake Feinberg show. I mean, again, it's it's this, you're pulling cassettes out of the box, you're hearing a song, you think of Paul, you Google search it, you see I did an interview, now we're on, the, now exactly. we're doing one. So, exactly. It's great. Yeah, that's yeah. what it was. So it was so cool that I found, and when I listened to that track, I said, oh man, that was so much fun, man. In fact, the name of the song was Fun. And he brought a whole bunch of people in one night to, to party. He wanted me to mic the room, and everybody was partying and talking and stuff. And we put that track on the song. <laughs> oh my god! You... But, it, but it's really cool. It sounds like shit because I mean, I, you know, I I kept wishing, I kept thinking, oh my god, I wish I'd been a better engineer for that project because 
it just sounds shitty. Well, but I mean, like I, people I didn't are talking. Yeah. No, you know? but and, and but I just also want to <laughs> tell you, man, I would really consider digging out those Keith Green tapes. I that stuff is. Re- I'm not, you know, not that it matters, but it in some right. ways it does because I'm literally looking at this transcription from Hadley uh, because that dude became a freaking as big a Christian rock star as you could get. Well, I figured he, he, yeah, you know, it's like I've worked with so many cats who I thought would be right. huge that were not huge. And he was one of them. I just, I worked with him this one day and, and, and it was like this one song. I loved it. So I copied it, brought it home. And, and even now these days when I hear that, I just go, God, this guy is so good. Man. <laughs> but, you know, and so, but I still have that. And, you know, uh, I would probably be inclined to send you a copy if you promise not to put it on the internet. Oh, of course I would not ever. Uh, no, no way, dude. I only, I only put my, I only put my con, I only put my content, I only put my content, like my interviews. I don't, to me, like, I just, I'm an, on top of being a rogue journalist and a broadcaster, like, I really am somebody who uh, is deeply uh, committed to, um, you know, Get, get highlighting the sort of the, the this the yeoman's work that you did. I mean, the amount of the amount of free time that you put into this kind of stuff is is pretty magical. But yeah, we'll, we we will definitely get to that. And uh, I'd really want to hear that attitudes tape too, man. That's yeah, un- man. yeah. Next time we talk, we'll talk about uh, the album I did with Badfinger with Mal Evans producing it. And oh. you know who Mal Evans is? Oh yeah. Oh my God. This this was a project that I was doing with Mal Evans for about six weeks, and he was killed right in the middle of it. Wow. That's when he was killed, and Bob Hughes' ex-wife was living with Mal, and she was the studio manager at the record plant with Gary Kelgren and Chris Stone. That's the, those, the, okay, thank you. Um, dude, Kelgren and Stone started Jim Keltner night. That's who it was. Thank I, you. I know. Yeah. Well, I know. Yeah. I knew, I knew Gary Kelgren. I'd met him before. He was an engineer. Right. Chris Stone was like the, you know, the accountant business guy. He wasn't around a lot, but Gary Kelgren was around a lot. He was the guy who always, you know, was smoking a joint in there. Oh my dude. I need, dude, where is, is, is Kelgren still with us? Where is he, man? Oh, Quite a while ago, man. Twenty years ago. Wow, dude, we got a lot more to do, man. Bob Hughes died about thirty years ago. Kelgren, I'm thinking, is he's thirty-five years ago. He died, and uh, and I heard Keith Green died. So that's true, right? I didn't know that. I just the the spirits are at work, man. We got a lot more to do, man. Yeah, man. All right, man. Be cool. I'll get this up later tonight. Thank you so much, dude. Okay. So uh, I will talk to you soon, Jake. Yeah, I'll send you that set set two with Stallworth too. Oh, thank you, man. All right, brother. Be cool, man. Okay, you too, man. See you later. Peace. Okay. Bye. bye.